Hello, my name is Ashley Amato and welcome to my podcast. Today we'll be discussing the relationship between famous plagues of the past and the current COVID-19 pandemic. Although over 600 years separate these two events in history, there is still a striking amount of comparisons that can be made. Today, we'll be drawing from a range of credible sources from each pandemic so that we can look at and analyze societal strategies and responses that prevailed in the 14th century and compare them to strategies and responses used to combat COVID-19. By the end, we'll be able to, to decide whether or whether or not there were any valuable lessons we as society learned from plagues of the past, if we use those lessons to our advantage, and if there are still lessons to be learned by future generations. We shall begin our discussion by recalling the events that took place during the 14th century. The mid-1300s marked the era of much darkness and tribulation for Europe. According to the History Channel, it all started when the plague had arrived in Europe in October of 1347, when 12 ships from the Black Sea docked at the Silicon Port of Messina. Most sailors aboard these ships were either dead upon arrival or gravely ill and covered with the trademark plague symptoms of black, oozing boils. Despite efforts to quickly order these plague-filled ships out of the harbor, it was too late to save Europe from the exposure of the horrifying sickness. Prior to the arrival of the death ships, word of the great pestilence had gone around Europe. It was said to have originated in Asia or China and traveled across Europe along the Silk Road and other major trade routes, eventually ravaging the lands of India, Persia, Syria, and Egypt. Eventually, the Great Pestilence would prove to be one of the world's deadliest diseases to date, killing more than 20 million people in Europe, or one-third of the continent's population. One of the reasons that the sickness was so deadly was because of how quickly and easily it spread. The spread was so rapid that many authors from the time compared it to fire catching on dry and oily substances. The cause of the plague is widely known to have been an outbreak of the toxic bacterium Yersinia pestis, which spreads quickly throughout the body and damages immune functions. The disease is widely believed to have started in a population of rats and spread to humans by flea bites that were able to transmit the disease. It wasn't until later years, however, that this information had been determined. So most people who had lived through the plague during the 14th century contributed the disease outbreak to miasmus, heavenly bodies, or unusual cosmic events. These beliefs that the plague was caused by these heavenly bodies and unusual cosmic events complicated plague responses and led to a wide range of reactions by the people. John Aberth explains these responses quite well in his book, The Black Death. He mentions how people who relied on scientific findings and believed in contagion of the plague would go into quarantine typically, seeing only their immediate family members for an extended period of time. Some would even flee their towns and head to the countryside where they believed they could completely evade the wrath of the plague. Some tried to purify the air and free themselves of miasmas by burning fires or carrying essential oils with them. Others viewed the plague in a different light. Keeping in mind the inevitable nature of death, some chose to live life to their fullest. They would throw parties and have large feasts in celebration of their lives. Some who believed the plague to be the fate of God would just await their death, eager for their ascent to heaven. Some simply denied it, arguing there wasn't enough evidence to prove its existence. 
So there are a few major factors that helps to influence the reactions of people during the time of the plague. And John Aberth touches upon one of the main factors that played a role in influencing the varied reactions of people. And the factor was religion and the varied religion beliefs at the time. So Aberth points out that Christians had more of a tendency to believe in contagion of the plague and they used strategies um, such as praying for God's appeasement to free themselves from the plague, but also they quarantined themselves because they feared that contagion of the plague was too risky to go about their normal lives. Muslims, on the other hand, did not see truth in contagion of the plague. They thought it was best to gather as a community in mosques and other sacred places and pray the plague away. So obviously practices such as the latter were certainly a huge risk since large gatherings of people would have led to an inevitable outbreak of the plague. And something that's interesting is even when a Muslim follower, a scholar, physician, his name was Al-Khatib, pleaded to his fellow Muslims that they view contagion in accordance with scientific findings to help save lives, his efforts only led to his eventual execution. And I think this sort of shows how stuck in their ways people tended to be at this time. Another big factor that affected uh, people's view of the plague was their status in society. In Journal of the Plague Year, author John Defoe gives readers insight into how classes played a role in plague reactions. Sometimes the rich population would trick the poor population into believing in fantastical witch doctors, rumored to have cures for the plague. Defoe explains that the people seeking out comfort in these potential plague remedies would run to the witch doctors, quote, for remedies which was generally set off with such flourishes as these, infallible preventative pills against the plague, never failing preservatives against the infection, unquote. Defoe explains that these witch doctors, despite their enticing credibility, quote, not only robbed and cheated the poor people of their money, but poisoned their bodies with odious and fatal preparations, unquote. Defoe is implying the witch doctors use the vulnerability of fear of people at the time of the plague for their own benefits. And as Defoe states, this largely occurred among the poor populations because it was easier for the witch doctors to scam them for their money. So something that I think is pretty interesting when all this information is looked at and analyzed is... Even though there wasn't a lot of scientific evidence at the time that could, you know, prove the cause of the plague and there were no cures, there was still enough evidence and, you know, just living at the time to know that there was a deadly plague and if you weren't careful, you would get it and the likelihood of dying was pretty high. And even with this information there was still a lot of doubt and different attitudes that people had when trying to deal with the plague. And a lot of it had to do with the contagion and how they handled uh, other people in society. You know, for instance, the religious aspect. So, of course, if you believe what you believe, you're going to do what you can to appease that God or, you know, follow the scriptures. But, you know, when science calls and 
it's been proven that if you quarantine, it could save lives, yet you still decide to gather. It just shows a certain mindset or attitude that the people had. And same with the higher classes tricking the lower classes into fake remedies so that they could get their money. It was just a an odd mindset for the time. You would think that they'd be doing everything they could to help each other out so that they wouldn't catch the plague and they'd, av- they'd avoid mass deaths. But still, these people were not con- not all concerned with trying to save others li- other people's lives. And it's interesting because I think it speaks a little bit about human nature. And we'll look how this uh, changes or doesn't throughout a couple other plagues. Just briefly before I move on to different plagues, I think it's important to note that you always remember that humanity did survive the plague. Yes, it was tough, and yes, they struggled, but humankind survived. And actually, not only did it survive, but it thrived in the period of uh, time following the plague. You know, the push for printing presses so they could get out media and push to improve science and technology. Maybe they realized there was a better way to run the economy. And these all contributed to the golden ages, which followed the plague. And this is what we refer to as the silver lining thesis. And John Aberth references this in his book as well. Because the Middle Ages are typically thought of as a dark and depressing time. But it's important to remember that there was certainly some good that came out of it. Now, if we fast forward to 1918, we'll see humankind get struck with yet another deadly pandemic. 1918 marked the beginning of one of history's most dangerous encounters with the influenza virus. This was another disease outbreak that struck global populations, eliminating at least one third of it at its peak strike. By the time the 1918 plague struck, society was in a completely different place. Science and medicine had been sufficiently approved upon since the bubonic plague of the 14th century, and most people at the time of the influenza outbreak had undoubtedly ruled out astrological interference with the outbreak, so they had faith in science. Yet this outbreak still had a ruinous effect on the globe. In an interview with The Takeaway, Dr. Alex Navarro discusses why this might have been the case in America. Navarro mentions that the federal government implemented mass mandates, quarantining, business closures, and other precautions that they were fairly confident would reduce the spread of the virus. At first, this strategy was successful. Americans were listening, they were determined to defeat the virus as a whole, but something that complicated things during this outbreak was World War I. It was still happening, and wartime patriotism began to change the attitudes of the American population. Surprisingly, a lot of this had to do with the government. They realized they needed morale and funding, so they began to propagate Americans into caring way more about the war than they should have. And this distracted them from their efforts to combat the influenza outbreak. On Armistice Day of 1918, hundreds of Americans gathered in the streets to celebrate the end of the war. Obviously, 
hearing this means influenza guidelines had been completely disregarded that day by a majority of the population. And this made it harder for local authorities and governments to re-implement guidelines because the people no longer wanted to listen. They had a taste of freedom and it was a lot harder for these uh, authorities to try to get these people back into restricted lives. So following this, there were tons of anti-mask organizations that formed. People refused to adhere to business closures. And eventually, these attitudes led to a second and third deadly wave of the virus. This, yet again, comes as a little bit of a surprise to me because you would think that uh, people would be concerned mostly with once again, trying to to help save lives, trying to reduce the spread of the virus, trying to get it over with even uh, so that they could go back to normal lives. And the fact that the government played a role in preventing this from happening because they uh, pushed Americans to focus more on the war is pretty mind-blowing to me. You would, again, you would really think that the focus would be on trying to defeat this virus. But they were concerned about building wartime patriotism, getting money out of people. And uh, one interesting point of this actually can be related back to Pale Horse, Pale Rider, uh, a short novel written by Catherine Porter. And in Pale Horse, Pale Rider... Uh, the main character is struggle struggles a little bit with money. She lives pretty much day to day, and there's a scene in the book where two men tried to pressure her into purchasing a liberty bond, which was pretty much the government's way of helping fund for the war and build patriotism. And when she says no because money is tight, they they completely disregard her situation. They continue to pressure her into buying one. And it just shows that this was the main focus of people at the time. They weren't concerned about other people. They didn't have sympathy uh, for people who were either struggling with the sickness or couldn't raise money. Their main focus was the war and trying to, once again, get money. And this, again, just is pretty surprising. And we can see if this kind of continues to where we are today. So here we are, nearly a hundred years later after the uh, influenza outbreak, and humankind has yet another pandemic on their hands. There is no war this time. The majority of the population doesn't believe it was the work of God. We have sufficiently better medicine and scientific programs, yet Again, this coronavirus is proving to be a deadly force. So what exactly is going on? And it's, there is no single answer, but we can start to pick this apart by looking at human behavior that we witness on a day-to-day basis. In fact, just two days ago, there was an article published in Maine Public that talked about large anti-mask protests occurring in what they now call a protest corner in Belfast, Maine. And there have been reports of dozens of protesters piled up on the corner each day chanting, no mask for me. 
And one interview highlighted in the article even captures one woman saying, quote, I'm hoping to give people hope that there are people that can see exactly what is happening right now, and we're not going to give up fighting for our freedoms. And if they want to come and join us, we're making our side stronger every day. More people are waking up and realizing that we're being lied to and that we're being manipulated, and this is not a real pandemic, unquote. Even though these COVID guidelines that are in place today are are in place to help reduce the spread, some Americans refuse to abide by them because they believe that their rights are being infringed upon. And one element of modern society that really complicates this matter is social media and fake news. Uh, modern day media and news tends to fabricate different news stories and theories about the virus just to get people to buy into them and help their business, even though they could be completely fake. Um, And it certainly doesn't help when politicians and other notable figures complicate this issue even further. One physician and frontline worker who is featured in NCBI uh, mentions how several presidents such as United States' Donald Trump, Mexico's Andres Manuel Lopez, Obrador, and Brazil's Jair Bolsonaro have continued to spread false information, such as safe injection of disinfectants, undermining the importance of face mask use and overall contradicting medical advice, going as far as outright denying the pandemic. Once again, Living, having lived through this pandemic and witnessing the different behaviors of people on a day-to-day basis, whether they're not wearing masks, they're gathering in large groups, they're trying to form organizations that doubt the existence of the pandemic or organizations that fight uh, for rights because they believe that restrictions are taking away their rights. Uh, it's pretty surreal because it's just it's still surprising to me personally um as someone who witnesses all the frontline workers and the the hospitals that are uh filled to capacity and all the different people that are struggling those who have lost family members to the virus And there's still people with a mindset that just disregard the the evidence. And even with science being as advanced as it is today, it's still not getting to a large, actually, portion of the population. And once again, the prevalence of various news outlets and media, whether it's fake or true, it's, it continues to complicate the issue because these people that tend to have a different mindset about the, about the coronavirus continue to feed off of information that might be fake, that they buy into to believe that the virus is fake and that it's a government plot, and it's just still pretty mind-blowing.
Looking at all the information provided so far and observing the various trends that have occurred from the 14th century to present day, it's interesting to note that although science and technology has significantly improved and general societal views have evolved and shifted, human nature has seemingly remained fairly consistent. And this is something that authors like Marcel Thoreau and Loritzis have pointed out in the past. You would think that based on past pandemics, human nature would have improved, or tried to at least, improve upon their actions. Adhere to guidelines that they know would work. Listen to the scientists who have studied these plagues and pandemics. Here we are again, failing to take advantage of these lessons. For future generations, I think it's important they note that doing things like protesting mandates, uh, loosening up restrictions, feeding the population fake news, all these are actions that are not effective. Unfortunately, if humankind follows the trend that we've been following, all this information will have been proven useless. There's one thing that can remain consistent, however, is that it's always important to humor the silver lining thesis and consider the positive side of things. And although the, fe the fate of future generations for future pandemics seems grave, it's always important to remember that there's a light at the end of the tunnel. That's all for today, folks. Thank you for listening to my podcast. 